This morning we will be in the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And we will be reading all of Matthew chapter 2, so I encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along with me so we can all stay engaged. When you're there, say, Christ has come. Sounds like most of us are there. We'll begin Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. 
Westside, we're glad that you're here and continuing Merry Christmas to you um, as we still celebrate along with millions of other Christians, Christmas is not officially over. And I hope that you had a great Christmas, but actually historically Christmas Day begins the Christmas season. And so what we did on Christmas Eve is we packed into this place and we packed in and if the fire marshal had come, we would have had a problem. Um, and we had a room full of people with fire sticks in their hands. And what we did is we celebrated with anticipation that Jesus Christ had come. And what's so great about this is that it didn't end there and it didn't end on December 25th, but rather it actually continues. And uh, just this week uh, in our house, uh, towards the end of the day on Christmas Day, Piper Graham, our youngest, who's three years old, she asked, um, is Merry Christmas over? Is Merry Christmas over? And we got the, t uh, the chance to tell the story that no, baby girl, uh, Christmas isn't over. Because one of the things that we're doing this year here at Westside is instead of having Jesus revolve around our life or the life of this church, what we're doing is we're sort of stopping and we're jarring ourselves and we're saying that our life and the life of this church revolves around the life of Jesus Christ. And that's historically known um, as the liturgical calendar, which is the life of Christ. And so we celebrated the season of Advent and anticipation for the arrival of Jesus. But now we continue in the season of Christmas, which historically has lasted, you know, 12 days. It's a season in and of itself. Long before the goofy song, sort of 12 days of Christmas, Christians celebrated and feasted for a long period of time. And then this leads us up to the season of Epiphany where we look at these passages of the dawning and the revelation and realizing who this Jesus really is. And then Epiphany leads us into the season of Lent where we look at the temptation and the death of Jesus and we realize our own mortality and we realize what our Lord and Savior went through and we realize these passages what did Jesus really mean that anybody who wants to follow me must take up their cross and deny themselves but then we build again in anticipation and go to Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then Easter leads us into Pentecost which is the celebration of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so what we see when we look at this is that really in, we stand in stark contrast to the world itself. For when we look at the way that sort of the world celebrates Christmas, um, maybe this will be helpful, and I've used this before, but I'm a simple man and I need the jelly on the bottom shelf. When we look at the world and, and the way that the world sort of celebrates Christmas, and, and sometimes even in our own life, it's sort of like a microwave. And, and here's what I mean. Um, if you want a quick something, you just sort of stick it in the microwave, and there in the microwave you have nuclear power, right, okay? So your TV dinner, your popcorn, and you punch in just a few minutes, and then there you go, and you kind of have a, ah, uh, there's the meal. But the way that the church sort of celebrates the life of Christ isn't like a microwave, but it's more like a crock pot, okay? And what do you do with a crock pot? 
Well, anytime that Courtney is sort of going through our schedule and our dinner and this, that, and the other, I always know in the morning that she's getting the crock pot ready. But then when I walk in the door later that afternoon, it's like the whole house smells because there's been something in that crock pot all day sort of marinating and percolating and now the seasoning and everything like that. And, and, and actually, when we look at Christmas, and if we're honest with ourselves, um, whether it be Hallmark or whatever it is, we sort of celebrate Christmas sometimes like a microwave. We, it's, it's the busy, it's the hustle bustle, it's the punch in the numbers, it's the quick hot meal. Here we go, and then it's over, and then we continue on with our life. But when we pause and when we reflect upon the message of Christmas and celebrate it like the church has celebrated it for thousands of years. I mean, think about this. The world doesn't know what to do with this season. The world doesn't know what to do with this season or the season of Easter, right? So it's always like you'll see Time Magazine or National Geographic try to sort of explain this. But we as Christians... And, and even if you're a non-believer in the room, we're, we're, we're glad that you're here. We're going to do a lot of weird stuff today. We're going to say that we eat Jesus' body and drink his blood and those kind of things like that. But we have to be honest, and you have to be honest, that time, that culturally time itself revolves around this moment. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That this is not a season in a moment that we can just nuke in the microwave and continue on with our life. But rather, this is something that we have to marinate on and that we have to think about. And today, very simply, the big idea and the thesis is this. That the message and the meaning and the magnitude of Christmas requires deep meditation upon our part. I mean, we are proclaiming, and the songs that we have just sung say this. Number one, that we believe that there is a creator of the universe, of the Milky Way, of the stars, and the galaxy. That we believe that there's a God that created those things and created your life. And then we believe this, that we don't believe that that God just sort of spun the universe into existence and then just sort of stepped back and is withdrawn. But we believe, as Francis Schaeffer said, that our God is not silent and that our God has spoken. But not just that, we also believe that our God has come. That in the person of Jesus Christ, that the second member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, long before there was something, there was someone, there was a God and we believe that that God has entered into existence. This is something that we just can't put into the microwave and then continue on with our life. But if this is true, and today my thesis, I just want to lay this before you, that if this is true, that our lives cannot continue the same way, that this requires a response from us, that we just can't continue on with the way that we handle money or the way that we handle our relationships. But if this God has come and is not distant, but has now arrived, and if we meditate upon this thought, then, then sort of kind of like a crock pot, if you will, it, it brings something out of us. That when we think about this message, that it sort of brings something to the surface, and, and this holiday season, we, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll continue in that. But today we pause, 
and we look in the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew gives more detail to what happens after the birth of Christ than any of the other gospel writers. And so, you know, if your nativity scene has the wise men and this, that, and the other, it's wrong. Sorry. Okay, you can take that down, right? We know historically that those guys come after Jesus is born. And today in our passage, there's sort of three main characters. There's Herod, the great, the king, then there's the Magi, the wise men, and then there's the Holy Family, Joseph and Mary, and then Jesus. And, and if we spend time meditating on the magnitude of this, that we still celebrate, that we still sing these hymns, that now the Advent wreath, all the candles are lit, that now all of the light is now continuing to expand then something gets brought to the surface. And there's one person that sort of dominates this chapter. And, and by the way, we, we just read an entire chapter of the Bible in church. That's great. Some of your New Year's resolutions, there you go, right? You just read an entire chapter. And, and we would love that if you left here today and were like, well, I just think they just read too much Bible in there. I mean, it's 23 verses, an entire, we would take that as a great compliment, okay? Because we love God's word here. But in Matthew chapter 2, there's, there's somebody that sort of dominates all of this narrative, and, and that's Herod. And so I'm not going to be able to, to draw out everything in Matthew chapter 2, but what I want to do today is I want to take our thesis that the magnitude and the message and the meaning of Christmas that God incarnate in the flesh has come requires deep meditation. And if we do that, something is brought to the surface. You know, I think one of the things that, that we're not good at as sort of technology and time continues is actually something that's commanded of us in Scripture. That one of the things that, that we've learned is behold, right? I mean, the giant sign behind me says that, right? And, and behold actually means to stop and to meditate. But this day and age in 2019 and going into 2020 with technology and schedules and this, that, and the other, God actually says, be, be still and know that I am God. And that's something that we almost don't like doing. Um, it, you, know, I, you know, I quote this often, but the famous theologian Pink um, says that the quiet scares me because it's filled with truth. Because when we stop and when we meditate and when we remove the technology and the phone and the schedule and we sit in silence, something gets brought to the surface. Um, just recently, and I'll be sharing this a little bit more in 2020, I had the privilege and opportunity of going to sort of a prayer retreat and of quiet meditation. It lasted three days. And we slowly sort of worked our way on the third day to 24 hours of silence and solitude. If you know me, okay, um, that is like the scariest thing ever in the world. We ate our meals in silence and this, that, and the other. But one of the things that I found myself that as we slowly went into silence and meditation was literally, and I know this is going to sound crazy, literally craving distractions. Literally. 
Like it was, I mean, like, is there somewhere else that I can go? And there was a sign that said no one beyond this point. So I'm probably going to go back there. And so, I mean, I was just looking because the sitting and the thinking and the contemplating and the meditating was bringing something to the surface. And when I look at the pages of scripture and when I see how Jesus interacts and when I see how God interacts with his people, the stuff that gets brought to the surface that we try so hard to suppress are the very things that God wants to deal with us on. But he does it like a loving father. And maybe you grew up with the message and and the image that, that sort of God was out to get you, and you heard people yelling that God loves you, and you were like, if he loves me, then why are you so mad at me? And like, I don't get this. But in all reality, like a loving father, the things that get brought to the surface when we stop and when we meditate are the things that God wants to remove from our life and replace with his love and with his grace. And when we see Herod in this passage and the news and the magnitude that there's been a king that's been born within his providence, there's something that gets brought to the surface. And so what I want to look at is Herod and Herod's response to the news that a king has been born. And so we learned a lot about King Herod, right? Um, This guy was a bad dude, right? And so Herod wasn't Caesar, but he was sort of a manager and governor in a providence with Caesar. Think of Herod being sort of like Paul Blart, the mall cop, right? Like not really a lot of authority, but will tase you in a heartbeat type of a thing like that, but a really bad guy. So he was born with the ethnicity of being Jewish, but sort of sold out to the Roman government. And so he, he sort of rode the fence. So when the popular vote came, he understood that he was in a Jewish providence, but he also understood that he had to report to Caesar himself. And so we realized, we even showed a chart and a graph of Herod's wives. And we just, you know, said, hey, guys, um, one wife is enough, right? It never really goes well. We learned that Herod actually killed two of his own sons for fear that they would take his throne. And so Herod had a big problem. And Herod gave himself the self-proclaimed title of king of the Jews, But when we see that Herod realizes that there's news that a king has been born, something happens. And I love what the gospel writers do. And and I try to show you this anytime that we have an opportunity. But Luke and Matthew and the gospel writers always anchor this Christmas story or even the resurrection or the life of Jesus in real historical accounts. Okay, so long before Charlie Brown and this, that, and the other, the Christmas message was not birthed in a vacuum. It's not a fairy tale, okay? It happened in real time, in real events, in a real place with real people. And so we see this message that the wise men bring to Herod. And Herod has his own kingdom. And we see a few things that as Herod begins to sort of meditate on the magnitude of what this means, that things get brought to the surface. And the first thing that we see that sort of gets brought to the surface is this, um, anxiety, fear. 
Because look at what it says there in verse 3. Actually, in verse 2, the wise men come to Herod and say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Do you see what Matthew's doing? Like, look right there in your Bible. It's the wise men come and they drop the phrase. Where is he who has, who has been born king of the Jews? It's like Matthew is writing with almost a bit of sarcasm on the level, right, on the surface of the text. The wise men say, hey, there's been a king born and he's king of the Jews where's he at, king? And then when Herod hears this, he goes, wait a second, I'm, I'm king of the Jews, and somebody's saying that there's somebody else coming along. And then it says that he was greatly troubled. The phrase greatly troubled literally means um, torn between two halves, that there was fear, that there was anxiety, that there was all of this. Why? Why? Why would Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, record for us Herod's initial knee-jerk reaction to the news that a baby has been born and this baby is supposed to be king? Because if you're a king and you've built your whole life around the throne in which you sit on and you hear that there's another king born in the area, that's a threat to your kingdom. And what we see when we look historically at Herod is that Herod did anything and everything that he could to continually build his own kingdom at the cost of anybody else. And one of the things that we do when we read the Bible is we sort of, um, we make a grave error in the church. We, we go, okay, these are the good people, and then sort of these are the bad people, right? And so Noah, Noah was a good person because he found favor, and this and that, and then these people, they were bad, and this, that, and the other. Hey, listen, newsflash, the Bible is one story, and it has one good person and one hero in it, and the star of the story is not you. Merry Christmas. The star of the story is Jesus Christ himself. But when we realize that Jesus, listen, the wise men don't say, we hear that a good teacher has been born. We hear that a wise person has been born. You see, a lot of times that's what we do with Jesus. We, we don't ascribe to him the worth and the title that is truly his. And so um, we sort of go, you know, I like Jesus, you know, in the long hair and the peace sign. He probably wore hemp sandals, lost member of the Beach Boys, love the Sermon on the Mount. My life verse is do not judge. Love that one. That one's great. You know, feed the poor and the hungry and this, that and the other. But we don't know what to do with the claims when Jesus says, um, when you've seen me, you've seen God. Those are the claims that got Jesus murdered. Listen, have you ever wondered what is so offensive about the gospel message? That, that all the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul, Peter, everybody says, um, this message that we proclaim, it will be hostile to the world. Why? Because we do not believe that a consultant has come to improve your life in seven easy steps. We believe that the king of the cosmos has come and that he rules and reigns. 
And the proper response to a king is to bow and to surrender your life. So the reason why Herod is filled with anxiety is because Herod sits on the very throne of his own life. And so rather as we walk through and look at Herod and go, wow, that's such a, quote, bad person. What if we said to ourselves, man, I see areas of my life where I'm Herod, where um, my marriage, my parenting, my relationships, my job, all of these things, I sit upon that throne. And anybody who comes along and demands or says something that threatens me, I'm filled with sort of this fear and this anxiety. Herod's first response was to be anxious because he was sitting on the throne of his own life. The second response that I see is this. I see an agenda. Look at what it says there in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, the wise men, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word. Here it is. That I too may come and worship him. Right? I mean, can you read the sarcasm on the text? It's like, oh, yeah, okay. I'm sure like the wise men looked at each other like, what is going on? And when I read, it's just the way that my mind works, okay? When I read this, I thought about the scene in The Grinch when he turns and the big smile sort of comes on his face. That literally, that's what Herod looked like. Um, Let me know where he's at so I too can come and worship him. Herod wanted to know where Jesus was. Not because he wanted to come and surrender his life to him, but because he had his own agenda. His own agenda. And actually, we see that people respond to Jesus this way all in the New Testament. Um, Do you know what a, a, a very familiar phrase that Jesus asks people when they come to him? What do you want me to do for you? And some of them are like blind and they're lame. Like, there's literally a guy who's blind, Bartimaeus, who comes to Jesus, and Jesus goes, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I'm blind. Um, I don't know, right? I mean, it's like, what, why does Jesus ask that question? Because Jesus is very interested in the desires of our heart. Because, you know, I, I don't even think that we actually know what we want in our life. Like, oh, Bartimaeus, you you want me to heal you so that you can see, but do you know how much your life is going to change now? That now there's going to be a job, and now there's going to be this. Your life is forever going to be changed when you interact with me. And, And it happens all the time when I have the privilege and opportunity to sort of do premarital counseling or marry people and this, that, and the other. And it's like, I've got the couple sitting there in my office, and it's just like the smiles... And she's so excited because she gets to do all the Pinterest stuff that she's seen, right? Like, it's going to be so great. And the guy's like, I just need to show up at this time, and I just need to be there, and this, that, and the other. And, and it's like, we've, we've desired this, and we've wanted this for so long. And, and my whole job, my whole job in premarital counseling, apart from explaining what the biblical roles are in this, that, and the other, is to constantly say this message. You have no idea. No clue, 
Oh, no, 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 no. No, we know. We know. No, you don't. No, you don't. Why'd you come today? Why'd you come today? Did you come today because maybe if you came and worshiped God, nothing bad happened to your family? Did you come and did you give an offering today because you believe some sort of prosperity lie that if you do this, then God's obligated to do that in your life? Listen to me. I'm a pastor. And there are times that when I come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he reveals to me that I have my own personal agenda when I come. You see, what's so scary when I look at Matthew chapter 2 and I see Herod is I don't just see Herod, I see Jason. And there's times where I think, oh no, I've been building blank or I've been doing this and I've been jockeying for power and positions in this and, and I feel anxious. And God reveals things through the power of his word and his spirit that I have my own personal agenda. But then there's also another response that we see in Herod, and it's this, the attack. This isn't the very, um, you know, you don't read this around the Christmas tree because it's one that we sort of like to edit sometimes in our Bible. But look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is what's known as historically the slaughtering of the innocents. The New York Times published a beautiful article Um, this week, and it talked about that the Christian message has a response to it. But what we see is most of the time, the opposition to the Christian message, the people that get harmed the most are the people that are on the outskirts of power and position. We see the innocence of these children And we see the slaughtering that took place. Most scholars and theologians believe, you know, ascertaining from the population and this, that, and the other, about 30 or 40 children would have been murdered. I mean, what was was that like? Could you hear doors getting kicked in? Babies screaming? Mothers running and fleeing and hiding? All because why? All because there's somebody who has jockeyed for position in power and says at whatever cost, I will protect my throne. And so the way in which Herod says that he can attack and cancel this message is for innocent people to get harmed in light of that. And, and one of the things that, that, that we have to look at the life of Herod and, and at least, I don't even want to say this, but at least ascribe to him is this, that he's honest. That he's honest. That he's honest about his response. You see, a lot of times I think that 
we think what the attack on, you know, Christianity is, and there's a war on Christmas. There was actually more so a war at Christmas. And because somebody in Walmart didn't say Merry Christmas to you, you feel like you were persecuted, and you go on Facebook, and you do, and, and we have no idea what is actually taking place. What's actually taking place and what's more threatening for us is to not meditate on the, on the magnitude and the meaning and the message of Christmas and self-reflect on the areas where we ourselves in our own lives are trying to attack this message. And, and by the way, if, if you're a non-believer in here or, or if you're somebody who's sort of you know, peeking over the fence at Christianity and, and you have questions, one of the things that, that you have to do is you have to be honest right? Maybe this will help. This is a picture of a man by the name of Aldous Huxley. Aldous was a very famous uh, English professor, philosopher, um, all the way from Oxford, uh, Oxford to NYU. And he was writing, the, I mean, the guy has more degrees in Fahrenheit, and he was writing his autobiography entitled Ends and Means. And he was a self-proclaimed sort of atheist, and any time that he could engage with sort of attacking the message and the magnitude of Christianity, he always did in his writings. But in the chapter of his autobiography, he becomes very honest and self-reflects. And he's honest about what his agenda and his anxiety and the reason for attacking the message of Christianity was. And he says these words, I realize I didn't want there to be a God. And the reason why I wanted my atheism and my philosophy to be true is I wanted life to be meaningless because then I could do whatever I wanted without being held accountable for it. You see, if anything... Herod understands something, that if this is a real and true king, then my life now changes. This isn't something that I can continue going on and living my life the way that it was before this news happened. He comes along and says that if this king is true, then my kingship is in threat. And I think there's areas in our own lives where where we sort of compartmentalize and we go, okay, Jesus, this is, um, you know, for I'm going to pray for this. And I know maybe this is the right thing to do. Like my parents were Christians. And so I was born into a Christian home. And so I go to church, you know, on a candlelight thing. And then on, and then on Easter. And so because I watched Fox News and was born in Butler County and voted Republican, I'm clearly a Christian, right? And the answer is, is No. The answer and proper response to Jesus Christ is to bow to his kingship and go, now my life is no longer my own. So my dating life, my finances, my marriage, my sexuality, my identity, all of these things now I lay at the feet of this king so what can we pull and understand from when we look at Herod's response when he meditates on the magnitude of this message? The first thing is, is this, no one is neutral when it comes to Jesus. No one's neutral. 
You see, Jesus does not give us the option to put him in the category of a good teacher and the same category as Buddha or Gandhi or this, that, and the other. Listen to me, the Bible is not a self-help book. And many of us read it that way. And when we read it that way, um, I said this recently, that, that, that we end up in two sort of categories. The first one is, is what Mark Twain dealt with. Mark Twain confessed that, that he had a recurring nightmare and that in which that he was laying down and the Bible, this big book, was laid upon his chest and it was suffocating him and it was smothering him because he tried to live up to the standards in it. And so when you try to make the Bible a self-help book and live up to the standards, you're constantly crushed under the weight of it. And by the way, if Jesus, this king, is just an example of how to live a good life, that is crushing. Because um, how are you doing with loving your enemies and forgiving those who hurt you? Doing good on that? Right. Or you think that you are doing good and instead of ending up in despair, you end up in pride where you look down upon everyone else. And why can't everybody else work as hard as you can? But rather, when we see this story and this message correctly and marinate and meditate on the magnitude of it, we realize this, that the reason that Christ has come the reason that Christ has come is to not help us in our life, but is to save us and give us life. That Jesus saves us from ourselves. And the very thing that Herod could not do was relinquish the power and authority of his own life. And then the next thing that I see is this when we pull from Herod's life. Is that self-absorption always leads to self-destruction. I mean, everything in Herod's life revolved around himself. I mean, even to the fact of the news and what was taking place. And look at what Matthew does in the text. He drops two hints to us. Verse 15, and they remained there until the death of Herod. And then verse 19, but when Herod died. I love that. You know what Matthew is showing? Herod's reign of self-absorption has ended because Herod died. But rather this news and this message and the magnitude of this king being born, Jesus' rule and reign on earth begins right when Herod's ends. That we don't gather in this place and nobody in the world is ascribing worth to Herod. Because Herod is buried and dead. But rather that the kingdom of God lives on and rules and reigns. So as, as, as I've been reflecting on sort of the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, which sounds like a Steven Spielberg film or something, right? There's areas of my life where I am so glad that 2019 is over. Anybody else? Oh, y'all don't want to be honest in church today? All right, cool. Yeah. And most of those, when I look back on, I realize that there was an area of self-absorption in my own life. 
that the areas of self-absorption in my life will always cause relational breakdowns when I'm jockeying for position and power and authority and playing life like it's a game of chess. I'll always feel threatened. I'll always have an agenda. And if your life revolves around only you, listen to me, that is exhausting. And it will only end in self-destruction. But there's something that Matthew is doing in this passage. Did you see the, the locations mentioned? And it says for the prophecy to be fulfilled and everything that's taking place. And then the, the parallel of, of Jesus being in Egypt and then, and then leaving Egypt and then the slaughtering of the babies and the firstborn. In closing, here, here's what Matthew's doing. Matthew is showing that when we meditate on the magnitude of this message, that Jesus is literally the link that joins the story of Scripture together. That when we read the Bible, if we read the Bible about ourselves, going, what is my verse of the day that will make me feel better or my life or this, that, and the other, rather than reading the scriptures as a constant story and climax pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. What Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is fulfilling the entire story of the Bible. That what we believe as Christians is that from the very first verse, in the beginning, God created. That that same God is this God that has now come and lived among us. And so as we conclude, I want to put it one way that another author put it. He says that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better able through innocently slain has his blood now cries out for our innocence and our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfort and the familiarity of heaven, not knowing where and whence he went to create a new people of God. That Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you you love for me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your one and only son whom you love for us. You see, Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve. So we, like Jacob, not only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. You see, Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives all of those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. You see, Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands 
stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new and better covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his dumb friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory. Though they never lifted a stone even to accomplish it themselves, Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't risk losing an earthly palace but lost ultimately heaven and everything in it who would risk the life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death would pass over. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is all about Jesus. And when we meditate on this message and this magnitude, the very thing that we are afraid to let go of is the very thing that God is asking of us, which is our life. For how many of you who tried to save your life could find it? But those who lose their life for my sake they truly find it. So on the last Sunday of 2019, and as we go into a new decade in 2020, can we be thankful for the magnitude of this message? The freedom that my life is not about me. That yes, there's areas in my life where, where I am Herod that there's a throne on my heart that I desire to sit on it. And every time I do that, I will lose the very thing that I want. But what we find out is what Jesus demands from us, he gives to us, which is everything, which is everything. So Westside, stand to your feet. And as we come to the table today, as we proclaim the very kingdom of God, we see and worship a king who did not sacrifice others for his kingdom, but sacrificed himself. So let us lift up our voices and pray how Jesus taught us to pray with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And as we come to this table, we see our King whose body was broken whose blood was shed. The world does not know the magnitude of this type of humility. But it's the very thing that we desire. 
The last thing that we need is another example of what dominance and power looks like in the culture. But when we turn to the pages of Scripture, we see that the most powerful act is an act of humility and grace. So God, as we approach your table today, we remove ourselves from the throne of our hearts and we replace it with the person of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.